Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. China's encroachment on Hong Kong's freedoms has thrusted the city into the spotlight. In the last years, China has taken steps to crack down on critics, pro-democracy and pro-independence activists in Hong Kong. Many Hong Kong observers see the gradual erosion of the city's civil liberties and economic freedoms as a sign of China's breaching the one-country-two policy system that was agreed upon between the United Kingdom and China when Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997. This has led to a kind of fatalism in the rest of the world about Hong Kong's future. Like our guest today, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I consider the city home. I follow the political, social, and economic developments that take place in Hong Kong and I write about these developments. In this episode, I'm joined by Ng Siwei, a GGF 2030 fellow and fellow Hong Konger. We talk about Hong Kong's current status and its future. Siwei is a lecturer teaching media law as well as a project and legal consultant in Hong Kong. So, good morning, Siwei, and welcome to the Global Futures Podcast. It's great to have you here with us uh, in Sao Paulo. Thank you, Joel, for inviting me to do this podcast and to have a dialogue with you. I'm very excited and I appreciate the chance to discuss with a fellow Hong Konger on what's happening in Hong Kong. You mentioned it already, a fellow Hong Konger, and it's a topic that is very close to both our hearts, uh, keeps us very busy and something we care deeply about. So let's bring our listeners back a little bit. 1997, July 1st, Hong Kong was handed back uh, to the People's Republic of China from, uh, from England, from the UK. Do you remember that day? Yes, I do. Yes, I was um, watching the ceremony um, at home from, yeah, on TV. This important and special ceremony marks the moment of both change and continuity in Hong Kong's history. It marks, first of all, the restoration of Hong Kong to the People's Republic of China under the terms of the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984, after more than 150 years of British administration. This ceremony also celebrates continuity because by that same treaty and the many subsequent agreements which have been made to implement its provisions, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region will have its own government and retain its own society, its own economy, and its own way of life. It was um, it was obviously a big day um, uh, for Hong Kong, but I must say back then it didn't quite register the significance of that moment. I it was uh, it was a big day. But then since then, of course, July first has come to the day where every year there will be protests um, and also celebrations at the same time uh, concurrently. So um, it is it has become a day where it is really reflecting um, what I was going to also touch on, the increased um, polarization in Hong Kong, but I'll go into that a little bit more later. You're right, it's it's a very significant day, and I, I too remember that day very clearly, and for me, it was because I was partaking in the handover ceremony as part of my school. If you remember, there was this big celebration ceremony, uh, and it was raining, I remember very clearly, it was drizzly that day, and we were literally, or my classmates and I, who were doing the whole dragon dance performance, were literally only meters away from Her Majesty and, and uh, Prince Charles and so on. Wow. And what really registered with me, I think years after, was I remember when, when they ushered the Queen away in, in her car and so on, there was this big battleship, remember, that was always parked in the harbor, the HMS right. Chatham. That sailed away too. 
And only years after I reflected and I thought that is really symbolic. It was as though the Brits had come with their ships and 156 years later, they sailed away into the sunset with their ship. And, and Hong Kong is Hong Kong again, except with a different ruler. Um, and that, that was kind of mesmerizing to think how, how the city that was kind of bridging east and west had switched hands from, you know, west back to the east and and i don't know it was it was very touching it was very kind of symbolic um to my mind what what has changed uh, to your mind since the handover i mean you live in hong kong uh so you experience it daily um what are the big changes that you've come across so yeah i i grew up in hong kong and um i but i really only moved back five years ago after living uh and studying um uh, years abroad, right? But um, wow, these five years, so much has changed in these five years too. So if I have to pinpoint one thing um, that really uh, stand out as a change, I would say is the um, growing anxiety, the increased polarization, and what seems to be um, the shrinking space in between for discussion. Hong Kong obviously faces many challenges now, uh, political uncertainty, fear of losing freedoms that we used to enjoy, and um, the growing social and economic inequality, um, an area of focus in terms of work for me because I'm now working in the philanthropy and social innovation space. Um, just last year, Hong Kong recorded the worst wealth gap in 45 years. According to the government's own statistics, this wealth gap has surpassed all of U.S. Um, major cities except New York. At the same time, Hong Kong also just recorded that it has a million millionaires, and in terms of the number of billionaires, it's second to New York. Property is 18 times uh, annual income. So with all that numbers, uh, you can see, you can imagine upward mobility is a huge issue in Hong Kong. And if you read the news, Hong Kongers are unhappy for many reasons. And um, it's not just the umbrella movement, but apparently the number of people immigrating are also uh, increasing once again in the past four years. So for me, as a Hong Konger, um, all these developments are worrying, um, but I'm most concerned about how we can create a safe space for discussion again. A particular context that um, I also want to uh, talk about, because you mentioned earlier on, this is a topic we care deeply about, and to be honest, um, I am, I'm quite confused about what's happening, and I'm also trying to make sense of it, I must say I have more questions than any concrete <laughs> thoughts at this point. And, and one thing, one context that I've been thinking about is, um, is this. Hong Kong is actually an immigrant city, right? And, and it's very interesting that um, we, are, we are chatting here because um, majority of Hong Kongers are still ethnic Chinese. Like there's 8% um, ethnic um, minorities. Um, so apart from the several thousand original residents in new territories, um, the majority ethnic Chinese, they all moved to Hong Kong. They were descendants um, of someone who moved from mainland China to Hong Kong at some point. And it really depends on why they moved, right? Is it during the Cultural Revolution? Is it during the Great Famine? Is it during the anti-Japanese war? When they moved and the experience of Chinese government can change their sentiments towards the Chinese uh, central government today, right? And also, some of these people may have experienced British rule quite differently. Uh, some of them experience it as the, giving us the foundation of independent judiciary. And British government was also very good in supporting the kids of civil servants to go to school in the UK, etc. But others may have experienced discrimination and inequalities during the uh, British rule. So all these uh, means that in Hong Kong, um, it really depends on that individual's experience um, uh, that that would um, 
impact their sentiments towards China and uh, what they think about uh, Hong Kong's future. So I'm not sure we understand this mix enough at this point, whether it is uh, Beijing or uh, Hong Kong um, policymakers. Yes. You've highlighted quite a lot of things, um, and that's great. I mean, that also shows you know just how complex uh, the whole issue of Hong Kong's unique status and what Hong Kong means uh, to China. But let me bring uh, bring us back a little bit and help our listeners make sense, especially those who are not familiar with Hong Kong. You mentioned Hong Kong uh, you know, had a unique status, it had freedoms, and it has freedoms that are not available uh, on the mainland. How do you think Hong Kong's unique status and its protection of the rule of law has helped China's economic rise? Yeah, well, definitely, like Hong Kong's um, legal system, for those who may not know Hong Kong as well, um, Hong Kong definitely has its own legal system that uh, it that relies, that basically is the common law tradition. And um, given we have free trade, a, a different tariff tax system, uh, we have the free flow of uh, currency as well as information, um, we have a lot more confidence from the international community in the financial and legal system in Hong Kong uh, because it is also a system that is adhering to international standards and is, uh, is, a, is a rule of law that is uh, familiar to them, right? And definitely as, a, as, the, as the connection between China and the world uh, for decades, uh, Hong Kong has played a great role um, in, um, in, in making being that bridge. Um, but what I would like to point out, though, is I'm questioning uh, how much of this uniqueness can now uh, be easily surpassed by the fast-growing Chinese cities. If we look at one figure that was put together in a report I recently read based on World Bank um, numbers, our economic relevance back in 1993 to China is 20, uh, Hong Kong's economy is 27% of China's economy. But in 2017, that number has reduced to 3%, right? So, um, And who are the major competitors to Hong Kong if you, uh, within China? If you look at the economic growth um, of China as a whole, then definitely the other cities um, are, uh, are playing a bigger role. And also in terms of um, the way that China generates its, uh, its income now is less reliance on trading. And, um, and if it's finance, then Shanghai and Shenzhen are the two uh, major uh, uh, stock exchanges in, in China. The, the, what, what makes Hong Kong unique uh, is that we still have the, uh, uh, we're not subject to currency control, but that is a regulatory choice, right, of, um, of the Beijing, of the central government. Um, and so this uniqueness uh, of Hong Kong, I think, is, is, is fragile. And therefore, for me, um, a big question uh, as we think about what we can do in Hong Kong is how can we make ourselves still relevant, not only to China, but globally. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this. Yeah. And in order for Hong Kong to, to remain relevant, it also has to deal with its own domestic issues. And earlier you mentioned, you know, it's a city of a million millionaires um, and uh, the wealth gap is just increasing in Hong Kong. I know every time I go back, I have this habit of um, taking a taxi and just, um, you know, cruising around. And I do that because I talk to taxi drivers and I find that incredibly interesting and insightful because they hear conversations of their passengers and they themselves live the life you know of working taxi drivers and they so they experience what life is on the ground and they often tell me you know of course in Cantonese and they say yeah we work really hard but I don't know what I'm working for uh, things are so expensive my kids cannot buy a flat you know this that and the other could you tell our listeners 
why has that wealth gap uh, increased so much in Hong Kong? Um, yes, definitely. I when I mentioned that there is a growing sense of anxiety, there's also a growing sense of helplessness, and because we're not seeing where um, what are some of the potential outcomes, right? Um, I also mentioned upward mobility earlier on. I would say the growing social economic uh, wealth gap is not something that is only unique to Hong Kong right now, but maybe that gap is one of the biggest in the world right now. Hong Kong experienced um, economic growth, uh, explosive economic growth for about three decades um, as like one of the four uh, Asian dragons, as you know. And then we have not, our government has not really been uh, building that social uh, net as it should have, and and of course there's a there's an increase, continued increase in our uh, uh, population. Housing price is definitely uh, key <laughs> to to Hong Kong, as you know. Hong Kong is not big, and um, it is land has definitely uh, been an issue. But um, this is of course a huge topic because at the same time, tax is low in Hong Kong, so land income has been one of the major incomes for the Hong Kong government, and and that huge reliance on uh, on land and property uh, to to bring wealth to Hong Kong is one I think one key major reason that we are seeing this uh, huge gap yeah in our home city yeah and the other thing if we look uh, further I mentioned that we need to be uh, how can we become relevant right so definitely we are facing challenges that maybe a lot of other major cities are facing whether it's aging uh, whether it's a change in the economic structure but it's also is Hong Kong innovative enough for the longest time we are uh, a strong service center we have a lot of like financial professionals legal professionals um, but now like we need to move beyond that like what are we doing in relation to technology are we doing it quickly enough are we uh, who are we uh, like just look at Shenzhen across the border, right? Like 20 years ago is a village, uh, but now it has grown to a mega city as well as one of the technology hubs in China, right? And it's just right across the border. What can Hong Kong do like um, in, in, uh, in these circumstances? And I think it also touches the, to the, the dilemma that Hong Kong is facing. On one hand, uh, we are not... We have we are very um, skeptical about being, having a closer relationship with China, being too reliant on China. At the same time, Chinese people, Chinese market, Chinese government—they are all quite different um, entities. Like the market is there. How can we also um, make use of it, but also bring what we have to this joint venture, not in the legal sense, but in like a broader sense, Belt and Road Initiative. Say, for example, um, yes, it is a Chinese initiative, but is there a role for us to bring our uh, best practices to this? That's a question. Uh, so rather than uh, adopting a binary approach to this, that this is a Chinese initiative, we shouldn't go near it. Is there a way that we can also bring our strengths into this um, this cooperation? Well, we'll come to the Belt and Road Initiative yeah. in, in a little bit. And it was an interesting example about Shenzhen because I remember where my grandmother lives in the New Territories. From her window, uh, about 20 years ago, if you looked out, you were looking at Shenzhen and they were paddy fields. And today they're skyscrapers and this, this literally built up in front of my very eyes. And it, it's quite astonishing. Let's change gears. I want to talk about politics and, and the relationship between Hong Kong and China. Now, over the years, I think I'd say the last decade, we've seen you know uh, how China has slowly, gradually imposed its rule 
on Hong Kong. Um, and by this, I mean, you know, it's, it has shown examples of cracking down on Hong Kong's rule of law. It has demanded that judges be patriotic. It has, um, for lack of a better word, kidnapped booksellers who were, you know, selling, uh, how can I put this, sensitive uh, books on members of, you know, the Chinese government. Uh, so on and so forth. So it, it's it's uh, you see you see a different approach now, um, and some people say, and perhaps rightly so, this erosion of the one country two policy system. What do you think this means in terms of how China perceives Hong Kong now, twenty years down the line? There are quite a number of points I want to touch on in relation to that question, um, but definitely um, the two incidents you highlighted. Uh, it is actually a state council white paper um, talking about uh, what it. What, what country two systems mean that called the judges um, administrators and asking all administrators to be patriotic. Um, that incident, as well as the uh, the arresting of the uh, booksellers outside Hong Kong, um, these are two incidents that have definitely uh, worried Hong Kong uh, uh, people. But uh, yeah, I will go into them a little bit more uh, later. But I would like to say uh, first that um, actually um, the one country, two systems is quite an unprecedented uh, constitutional arrangement, right? So Hong Kong has its own uh, legal system, has its own currency, has its own passport. Uh, while it is still part of China, this arrangement is quite, um, you can't really uh, uh, find find that uh, maybe elsewhere in the world. So how, but what does it mean? It sounds great um, uh, on paper, but what does it mean uh, in reality? And uh, we are over the past years uh, through um, different cases where um, we are seeing um, the touches on basic law articles and where the uh, NPCSC, the National People's Congress Standing Committee, issue interpretations. We are seeing um, that this, there's no easy answer to this. Um, there's tension, right? And um, first of all, you think about how do you actually have a common law system within a civil law system? And um, say, for example, Article 82 of uh, Basic Law said that the final um, power of education lies with the uh, Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong. But in the latest uh, Basic Law case, which touches on the, uh, the disqualification of legislators, um, the oath-taking controversy, um, you see that the uh, National People's Congress Standing Committee actually issue their interpretation while the case is already in court. So they issue their interpretation a few days before the court uh, uh, release its judgment. These were the legislators who were in the pro-independent, no, pro-democracy camp, I should say. Well, they were, they were more um, at the end of the pro-democracy camp that stresses localism and uh, self-determination, yes. So so you can see that, yes, with, even within the uh, uh, within our basic law, final uh, power to adjudicate lies with court of final appeal, and then you also have the articles that said that the final uh, right to interpret and amend lies with the MPCSC, um, it also, but then it also gives a mechanism that the court can seek uh, interpretation when it touches on defense and a relationship between Hong Kong and China, but because um, these are all just words, right? How it is implemented in, in reality have already shown tension. Say, for example, when the MPCSCS actually issue its interpretation before the court, and then the court has to say that, you know what, we are making this decision that they're disqualified, but uh, we're making this decision uh, not interfered, um, not 
not because of the NPCSC interpretation. So there's a lot of tension there. So why am I mentioning that is um, there's definitely, um, from Beijing's point of view, I think there's a very different way of seeing how this one country, two systems work, right? Because of the civil law tradition, between because of the common law tradition. And if we have some benefit of doubt, I can say that maybe there's room for that, uh, that learning process. But at the same time, what I want to say is sentiments and perceptions are something that uh, once um, once built or damaged is quite hard to uh, to uh, to to rebuild. So, say for some of the state council white paper. Strictly speaking, um, actually afterwards there were um, there were explanations that oh, it is just a translation issue um, about the administrators, right? But then there's already a wrong message being sent uh, to Hong Kong people that um, what exactly is uh, calling judges administrator, right? You don't do you even respect the common law tradition in Hong Kong? And there were other clauses used in that white paper, the State Council white paper, which is not the legislature in China, right? It is the executive arm. And they they talk about um, the uh, central government has the right of overall jurisdiction in Hong Kong and that they have the power of uh, supervision. These are uh, terminologies that are fake and they're not in the basic law. So when you talk about things in this way, yes, it may be translation, it may not be the legislature. It stirs fear um, in Hong Kong. So Yes. Let me, let me pick yeah. you up on, on your word perception. Do you think that China perceives what's happening in Hong Kong as a threat with all this movement of, you know, people wanting more uh, democracy, some going for independence, people fighting for universal suffrage, which was guaranteed to them, supposedly? So do you, do you see all these like political grassroots movements as a threat to China or does China see it as a threat? Well, I, I think... I don't know if they see it as a threat, but definitely you see China uh, setting red lines. They're eager to, uh, Beijing is eager to set red lines when it comes to sovereignty issues, right? So um, they, um, for example, the whole uh, disqualification uh, with the oath-taking controversy, it is definitely them putting their foot down that um, there's a line here and you just cannot cross it. Um, Victor Mallet's uh, visa that has that has not been renewed, right? Um, even though Victor Mallet, the Financial Times, yeah, the Financial Chief, Times yeah. uh, editor. editor. So I, I think increasingly we are seeing when it comes to uh, incidents uh, that touch on the sovereignty point, uh, uh, China is uh, is is drawing the, the the red line in terms of whether they see Hong Kong as a threat. Um, do you mean that it may lead to spread to other cities or um, I? To be honest, at this point, I I just don't even know if Hong Kong has that impact anymore. Yeah, I I, I think definitely China doesn't want the um the independence movement to grow um in Hong Kong. It definitely wants to nip it uh but but then um whether it's because it is 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 seen as it would threaten the uh the the rest of security in China. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, as I said earlier on, uh, it's a complex issue. And over the years, we've seen how there are various camps that have developed in Hong Kong, right? We have the pro-democracy camp. We have the pro-independence camp. We have the pro-China camp. We have the camp that just wants to get on <laughs> with their life. Um, where do you see this going in the coming 10, 15 years? Do you think Hong Kong society would be more fractured? Do you see it eventually coming together and just saying, you know, let's get on with it and almost in a fatalistic way saying we are part of china let's just accept it um what's what's your what's your gut feeling on this 
Definitely, I think Hong Kong is uh, quite fragmented now, right? Um, what I would like to see, as we talked about already, Hong Kong was a colony and then it switched masters and now is part of China. But I feel like Hong Kong is still searching for its identity, right? And I think political um, system um, definitely um, matters. Like our political future definitely matters. We haven't even started. Like I think people have started talking about obviously what happens to Hong Kong after 2046, but that discussion really hasn't been formally um, in, uh, started, right? Um, even our political reform is kind of stuck right now, and and this is um, this is hurting Hong Kong. Say for example, a friend of mine is an arbitration lawyer in Hong. Kong and increasingly she is seeing clients choosing Singapore over Hong Kong say for example because they're not sure what the legal what the, what's the legal system uh, beyond 2046 um, and infrastructure projects easily spend decades right so what I'm trying to say is I think we def- definitely need to um, work together and 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 quickly rebuild trust and um and 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 a consensus on how we want to move forward in relation to um political uh, reform as well as how can we build hong kong make hong kong relevant again and resolving the socio-economic problems that we face in 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 hong kong we need a new story uh, for hong kong and i would like to um, see if we can think more about like what kind of apart from continue to push for political reform in relation to universal suffrage, which is guaranteed in our basic law, um, can we also spend time thinking about what kind of city we want to become, like the values that we want to embrace. We international city. We want to become more equal, more just. Um, we want to be even as one of the most hyper-dense cities in the world, can we set an example on how we can become a sustainable city, addressing um, some of the um, environmental and aging and other global challenges that other cities face? And I also want to mention this, while yes, there are um, there are signs that um, that the uh, that safe for some press freedom, not so much direct censorship as one would experience on mainland China, but maybe through the change of ownerships and things like that, that the space for press freedom seems to be uh, shrinking. But at the same time, we also need to be fair about what we still have. Say, for example, independent judiciary. For years now, including this year's um, chief justice in their legal year opening speech. So every year there's a legal year opening speeches given by the Chief Justice, the Secretary of Justice, Bar Council Chairman, so on and so forth. They have been talking about let's understand better how the court system works and how we still have the independent judiciary. Um, This year's the focus was the unwarranted attacks on the judges because in a certain case where um, one of the uh, uh, localist leader uh, during the Mong Kok riots, um, he is now being sentenced. And uh, the, after he was sentenced, uh, his supporters uh, launched attacks um, on the judge and uh, her family uh, online. And um, and the judges is saying like these attacks, you need to. Um, you need to really look at how the court processes work, right? It's not just that you got a judgment that is not in your favor, and the and that's the um, that's independent judiciary uh, losing his independence, um, because the we need to also be fair with what we have in order to um, to continue uh, to work on what we don't have, and also not hurting our own reputation, because um, already there are um, a lot of. Um, uh, skepticisms about whether rule of law is, uh, uh, is 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 reducing in Hong Kong, and that is very much hurting. Uh, what I was talking about, whether Hong Kong is still relevant, how can it build on its strengths to remain relevant? 
you clearly care a lot about Hong Kong and uh, you have a long history of you know yourself working there and family and so on and so forth and this this question of relevance and and Hong Kong mattering not only to its own people but to the international community is is always on the forefront of a lot of people's minds how do you think Hong Kong can remain relevant um, while you know there are other major cities in China propping up and there's big competition globally. What what do you think is unique about Hong Kong that can keep its relevance in the coming future? Definitely it goes back to what like our infrastructure that is a rule of law, right? Our independent judiciary, there's still relatively uh, the free the freedom of press and media that we enjoy in Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong has great can-do spirit. We always talk about the lion rock spirit, right? And I think it's still there, even though there's also a lot of frustration and anxiety and the lack of upward mobility. Um, but I think uh, we are also very practical people. Um, on one hand, it could mean that um, it's borrow time, borrow space, and if things don't go wrong, we immigrate. But what the umbrella movement, um, through the umbrella movement, yes, the polarization that came out of it is worrying, but at the same time, I was also encouraged, encouraged by seeing so many Hong Kong people caring about uh, Hong Kong, and they want to do something about it. And there's this uh, discussion um, now, what kind of Hong Kong we want to see. And I think that is very um, important and, and, and encouraging. And so I think it's also, I think is how can we now really uh, try to uh, see ourselves more as a community and work together to um, to uh, to to build trust again, to uh, to discuss, to respect different viewpoints, um, so that there will be um, a more of consensus. Is not the right word, but that we can move towards um, a common goal. Because I think uh, we do all want a better future uh, for Hong Kong. Um, there are certain realities here. Of course, we need to take into consideration how Beijing think. But at the end of the day, it is also, um, for lack of a better word, it is also what bargaining power we have, right? Like back in 1982, when UK um, Thatcher and, and Deng Xiaoping talk about uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong's was 27 percent uh, or, uh, um, or, or more back then. It was the relevance of Hong Kong to China then. Arguably, when it comes to economic power, is much is much higher than what we have today, right? So how can we build that bargaining power? Let's, let's think more about how do we develop innovation in Hong Kong. Let's think about um, sustainability uh, we mentioned earlier on. Uh, let's think about what kind of values. Like Hong Kong still have a lot of discrimination. How can we work on that and make Hong Kong more inclusive city, right? Let's, yeah. let's talk about the Belt and Road Initiative yeah. because you mentioned that earlier. This is you know, a huge infrastructure and economic program backed by China, which basically links uh, you know, China th uh, through uh, Central Asia and all the way to the, the doorsteps of Europe, you know, and uh, I'm thinking, where does, where do you see Hong Kong fitting into this? Or should Hong Kong partake in this initiative, essentially meaning getting closer and closer to China? Or should, should it step back? And if it does join, um, what's the role of Hong Kong in this? Where do you see Hong Kong fitting into this initiative? Yes. Yeah, so, um, first of all, I, I think in, in in relation to uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, I I'm, I I think is not once you become once you uh, play a role in um, uh, the BRI, then you are uh, closer to China, right? In fact, there are a lot of other <laughs> initiatives like the Greater Bay um, mm. Initiative in Hong Kong right now. There are many different ways that are already trying to increase regional integration um, in Hong Kong, and I think um, for Hong Kong is a matter of in which 
roles uh, you can still play to your strength, right? How can we uh, still highlight our strength? If our strength is an international legal dispute center, arbitration center, if our strength is providing uh, legal services, financial services, uh, professional services, and that can be um, that can be uh, applied along BRI, yes, let's do that. But while while seeing Shenzhen or Shanghai and Beijing um, as cities that we are competing with in a good sense, we should also uh, look at what Singapore is doing. We should also look at what Seoul is doing. They are doing so much innovation in these cities. Can we also, um, we, we also need to catch up with them, right? And also think of Hong Kong, how can we be a leader? We Now we talk about sustainable finance, right, in Hong Kong, which is an initiative that I'm working on. Is there a room for us to be a leader, bringing in international best practices when it comes to environment, social, and governance uh, to the projects uh, where investors in Hong Kong or the financial system in Hong Kong has a role to play? Can we actually help lift that standard? I want to see Hong Kong become a leader in relation to this, yes. Hong Kong's work is cut out for the city and its people. Um, Tsiwei, I want to give you the final word um, before we come to an end, because I see we are at the top of the hour now. What are your hopes for the city that both you and I care for so much? I want to see um, Hong Kong to um, to continue to remain relevant, obviously. Um, but I also want to finally see Hong Kong becoming the city that embraces the values we care about. I, I feel like, yes, maybe um, we, we did have freedoms, we did have rule of law, but there is still a lot of inequalities and discrimination in Hong Kong. And I... Um, I'm not sure it is quite the cosmopolitan that um, it has the potential to become. And um, I want to see it going that way because I think um, there is a lot of potential and things to love about Hong Kong. And yes, that's the direction I want to see it go towards. Thank you so much for joining me this morning in Sao Paulo talking about Hong Kong um, and for being part of the Global Features podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yes, and I didn't even get to ask you any questions, um, but hopefully we can do that offline. That's the next podcast. Yes. Thank you, Joel. This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugarbova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Ng Tsiwei. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.